Uh, I have this great privilege to share with you this morning a few things about uh, where we are as men in this church and what we see God doing. And um, it, just, it gets me reflecting. And I was always thinking about how you motivate men and how you talk to guys that, you know, you know what, stay out of my stuff. I've got my own thing going, and, and that's good. Uh, so don't get too close because I've, I've already got my own agenda working. And busy with my dad, who is 83 years old. Uh, my mom's been sick, and so I've been getting to have some great talks with him. And I started prying again about uh, his days in the Depression and his time going to war. And I found this to be a very interesting deal with my dad, because by the time... He was 12 years old. They had, in 1938, they had instituted the draft in this country. And they started telling the boys in school that it was only a matter of time before they would be called into service for their country. This is 11, 12 years old. By the time my dad was a freshman in high school, that was the year that Pearl Harbor, Harbor was bombed. And that was at the time that they started upgrading or intensifying this call to serve, to be, above, to be ready to go. And what they did on a regular basis, these guys from the American Legion. I said, American Legion? Because, yeah, that's, that was kind of the forerunners of the VFW. These are the guys, these are the doughboys that were over in France in World War I, who had already paid their dues, who, had been, who fought for the freedoms of this country in this world. And now they're coming back and they're soliciting the next generation of men to be ready to go fight for freedom. And so these American Legion guys, these old vets, would go to the high schools and they'd bring all the men together, all the boys together, and they would explain to them that, you know, your life has to be about something more than yourselves. That there is a looming call on your life to be engaged in the things that count. And the thing that counts right now is the freedom of this country. And they'd come in and they'd pitch this to all the boys. And these, these kids now are 14, 15 years old. This is his freshman year. By the time my dad was a junior in high school, half of his class was already in war. 17 years old. My dad was one of those guys. And I thought, well, Dad, what was the deal? What was so impactful about that time that moved men from being just about themselves to being about something much bigger, much greater? Well, he said it was two things. He said, you know what? Because it was your purpose in life to be about something that was more important than yourselves. Those old men understood that. And they were trying to pass it along to us. And the other thing was, he says, there's never been anything more noble than serving your people, your country, in this case, for the cause of freedom. He says, it's not a more noble cause in, in the world. So they encouraged these guys. He said, you know, don't wait. You're going to be drafted. But don't wait. Go intentionally. Go willingly. And go hard. And I found that pretty interesting because that's, in fact, what they did on my dad's 17th birthday. They walked him... He, uh, over to the train station after dinner and put him on a train and he was in boot camp the next day on his 17th birthday because you had to wait till you're 17 to officially have your parents sign for you because the draft started at 18. I thought, well, isn't that great? But here we are some 65 years later and we still find ourselves with that dilemma, if you will. How do we motivate men 
to engage in something bigger than themselves. Sixty-five years later, let's call, let's pretend for a minute that I'm the American Legion. That's not hard for many of you since I get so many hits about being so old, but that's okay. And you guys are a bunch of juniors in high school. And my challenge this morning is to say, guys, it's time to invest all that you are for something that's much greater than you are in yourselves. And how do you get there? I think when you, when you start looking at the Scriptures and you start wrestling with things, there are some obstacles. I said, why don't men, why, why haven't I all these years of following Christ just raced to the thrill of serving Christ, to being more of being about something, again, that was larger than myself? And I think well, the truth comes down here is that as we grind this thing out, Jesus pointed it out in the Gospels, what a big, one of our big problems. One of the hurdles that we've got to overcome before we can fully engage. Passage in uh, Matthew 6.24 is, is the one we're going to look at just for a second. I'm going to look at a number of different things this morning. But this idea that we are in a war, we're calling you to a cultural war, we're calling you to a philosophical war, an economic war, but to be sure, men, we're calling you to war, a spiritual war. A war for your soul and for the souls of those around us. That it is, in fact, a, a serious mission that's out there to be had. But Jesus, when he was talking to the disciples and he was trying to explain something, he said, we've got a problem here because in order for you to wage this war well, to do a great job at knocking it out of the park, the problem is you've got to be single-focused. And the trouble is we're often not single-focused. As, as we see, read in Matthew 6, 24, it says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't serve God and mammon. Well, Jesus was telling these guys, you have to make your decision what you want to be about. And, and most of us have spent a lifetime trying to prove God wrong on this verse. Most of us have been trying to say, oh yeah, we can, we can do both, God. I've gotten pretty good at it, you know, where I can, I can kind of focus on things that are very temporal and then focus on things that are eternal. And Jesus was telling no, you know, you really can't. In the long run, you either got to be on this game or that game. And we struggle with that, don't we? And I think it is the thing that really slows us down from throwing, throwing all in. But I would like to to make the case this morning, that make no mistake about it, that God has called us for a purpose, and He's called us to be focused. When you look at some of the key passages of Scripture on salvation, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says this. It's one of the verses, gentlemen, that you should have memorized, by the way. It's verses that talks about how we get saved. How do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? This is that verse, among many, many, many others. But the part of the verse that we, that we often go without is the last part. But it reads like this, for, for by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no man may boast. And then it says this, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Let's not forget verse 10. That the purpose of us being saved is for a purpose that's greater than ourselves. 
You didn't get saved. You didn't get to be relieved and restored and forgiven of your sin so that you can go do your own thing. God saved us from that depravity, that death sentence, so that we would have a life of purpose. And this purpose was to follow Christ. And the discontent that we have in the body of Christ is the guys and the gals that have come to faith and they're not pursuing full-heartedly their whole purpose to be used the way God has designed them to be used. If you ask Paul, Paul says this in a number of different ways. In Philippians 2, 3, he says this. If you're looking for your cause, he says this, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each regard one another as more important than yourself. He said life has to be about something other than you. And yet so oftentimes we're stuck on the you part of life. So how do we drive past this? How do we, we get past this dilemma whether we're going to serve God or we're going to serve mammon? How do we understand that we need to be totally focused on this whole idea of fully following Christ? You see, if life is to make sense, and if we are to wage war and win this war, we have to be fully in. We can't go half-hearted, half-divided. We can't kind of think it's okay to dabble in temporal things and dabble in eternal things. God says you've got to be a, a soldier is fully focused. For a soldier that's not focused gets taken out. And like this, I said, what is bigger than yourselves? I think when Jesus was spending all that time with his disciples, he came, he brought up obviously a gazillion great little points, but every now and then he'd sit on one to make sure they got it, because all the other stuff is superfluous if you didn't get, get the one big item. And there was a, there was a passage in uh, John 6 where Jesus had been telling uh, all of those who had been listening and People were loved hanging around him because he was kind of a special guy. And then he started upping the game a little bit. He said, you guys don't need to be sitting back on your laurels. You can't just follow and take the good things you like about me and then when it gets tough, to bail on me. If you're going to follow me, you're going to follow me. And those words were really hard on so many people. Because, you know, once, often that people want to follow this Jesus until it gets a little difficult... Or things people start asking of them. And so they bail. And so was the case back in Jesus' day. And so as these people were leaving, Jesus then turned to his own disciples and says this. Said, Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? You guys want to go too? You sure you've been hanging with me now for a couple of years? Everyone else is starting to bail because the heat's being turned up. The cost of following me is, is significantly going higher and higher. Are you really in this thing? And Peter responded this way. He said, he answered, Lord, where do we go? You have the words of eternal life. If there's anything greater to go do, to be about, then go do it. You've heard that many times if you've been around this campus very much, that we've often said if you can find something that's more significant, that's a greater cause, that's anything more wonderful to do than fully following Christ, then go do it. But we will challenge you to the fact that there is nothing. That at the end of the day, we are going to answer the same way Peter goes, where are you going to go? 
I've looked at everything. I've heard everybody's offer. But you, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. Where else would I go but to follow you? Follow you. To be fully devoted. When nothing else, when you compare it, nothing else matters. And they said, this is the bigger thing. To be bigger than us, to be fully followed Christ, just like Peter said, I have no place else to go but to follow you. And the second thing to do that is not only to follow Christ fully, but then to broker all of your influence, all that God has given you to get others to do the same thing. That's the Acts 1-8 passage. Acts 1-8 is a very important passage because why? It's the last thing Jesus said. The last thing Jesus said, He said, Hey, listen, i got a great idea. You guys, you guys are going to be my spokesman. You're going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to be my witnesses. I'm leaving it to you. Fully follow me. Use everything that you're about and get others to do the same. We have all kinds of great little terms for this. To fully follow Him is to be a disciple. And to broker your influence to get other people to do the same is called disciple making. And that's what we're calling one another to. That's where the battle, that's where the war is won. That's where this cause that is greater than ourselves takes on real, real form. Well, what does this guy look like? What does this guy, this man look like who's fully devoted and who's spending his life making other disciples? Well, I was going to use a couple of different passages in the New Testament, and I thought it would be fun to use a very familiar passage from the Old Testament. And it's Psalm 1. Because you say, is there anything about discipleship in the Old Testament? Yeah, there's tons of stuff about discipleship in the Old Testament. And Psalm 1 is one of those great passages. Psalm 1 reads like this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields his fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Now that should be a passage that's relatively familiar to you. I'd like to take a couple seconds and drill down. Because in here, you'll see the elements of what it looks like to be a fully devoted follower. To somebody that is sold out to something greater than himself or herself. You see, that first verse is a great picture. It says, this is what a blessed man looks like. He doesn't walk, he doesn't stand, and he doesn't sit in the presence of sin. That a fully devoted follower, a disciple of Christ, is someone that whose sensitivity to sin is turned up to the ten. Where it's not something he chooses to dabble in and to play with and to nurse along. It is something that there is a full-out attack on not being a part of. These verbs are very good to look at. If you look, at, there's kind of a progression here, if you will. There is the standing... I mean, excuse me, there's the walking, which is kind of a perusing. There's the standing, the kind of the deeper consideration that, hey, man, maybe that's the way to go. And then there's the picture of the sitting down with the scoffer saying, yeah, it doesn't matter, I'm just going to do my own thing. 
This is a great picture of someone who plays with sin, ignores temptation, and drives right through. And the Scriptures tell us that blessed is the man who doesn't do these things. And that's what we want to be about. We want to be about calling one another not to do these things. To me, the picture that these three verbs show in, in this first verse, it's a picture of children playing soccer on a field that has a cliff. And though the game may go on for a season, it is just a matter of time before the ball goes over the cliff. And such is the case with you and me. To flirt with sin and to let that be a part of your program, to nonchalantly to think you got it under control and you can keep it at bay because it hasn't consumed the whole game, is foolishness. We're fooling ourselves. Blessed is the man who's not walking, standing, or sitting with this stuff. Years ago, I heard Chuck Swindoll say a message, so I can't tell you uh, what day that was or quote him exactly or where exactly it happened. But it was probably 30 years ago, and he was talking about temptation. And his comment to this deal was, he says, you know, we as men have this real problem. that We think that we're so tough that we can keep the door ajar on sin. That temptation is really it's an issue that you need to be concerned about if you have obvious weaknesses. But his, his argument here was, he said, you know, for those of us who like to keep the door ajar on temptation, it's just a matter of time before your enemy, the roaring lion, comes and kicks that sucker in. And that's the way he said it. He said he will kick that sucker in. And I had this visual of flirting with sin where Satan goes, ha, gotcha. And then it takes you on a course of life that is anything but productive and anything that looks, looks far from being a fully devoted life. You know, Jesus in his two times, uh, two of the great passages in prayer in the New Testament, one you'll find in the Sermon on the Mount, and the other one in John 17, when he actually prays for his disciples and for all of us in the Garden of Gethsemane. In both cases, both cases, he makes a big deal about praying to avoid temptation. When he is teaching us how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, he asks us to pray this way, to lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then in John 17, when he's praying for his disciples, he said, Father, I pray that you lead them away from temptation. So a fully devoted follower looks like a person who doesn't play next to the cliff. And that's what we're calling one another to do. To move our game away from the cliff. To be serious about sin. The second verse here is another excellent verse. Again, each one of these just drip. Each one of them could be a lesson in themselves. The second one is, is, but his delight is in the Word of God, is in the law. Now, the word delight here is just what it means. It's a great translation into the English. It is to take pleasure in. That's what this word means. That the fully devoted follower, that guy who is ready to wage war, that his source for being able to wage war is his delight in the Word of God. He is excited to know what God says about things. And then he meditates on it day and night. 
The first part of this is delighting them, that you take pleasure in knowing what God says about anything in your life. The exposure to, to take new ground and how to love your wives, to how to love your people that you work with, how to raise your children, how to make decisions, what to do with your time and your talents and your treasure. The Scriptures. He says He delights it. I want to know what you would say about it, God, so that I can do it. And then I want to tell other people how to do it too. There's a delight here. And he says, in his word, he meditates day and night. Now, this idea of meditating is a very, very great word, too. Because what it is, is this is the person that focuses on the word of God and to how what God can do in his life to change him. It's a self-meditating. It's a self-look to say, God, you speak to me. Let me quit using excuses of everybody out there, everybody I work with, my spouse, my kids, my situation, and blame all these things for not being who I'm supposed to be. Verse 2 is, is not, it's not doing that. It's looking at yourself. He meditates on the law day and night. So you say, God, show me what I need to change. See, that's where the revolution takes place in families, guys. The day you decide to let God's Word examine your heart to let you do the changing instead of waiting for all your circumstances to change. This is what we're calling one another to. We're calling each other to stay away from the cliff. And we're calling each other to be men of the Word. It's a sad thing to me to be with guys that have known Christ for a number of years and they can articulate the greatest part, the intricacies of partnerships and loans and, and uh, all these different things that go into making business work. But yet they would struggle to be able to tell you where to go find key passages in Scripture about marriage and divorce. They would struggle to be able to take you to the Scriptures to show you how you have to start a relationship with Christ. What do you do about friends and making decisions? How do you, how do you love your wives? You see, it's a sad day when we have spent more of our time understanding temporal things than not focusing on eternal things. And God says, that's not the way you're going to wage a war. You have to be able to focus on eternal things. The third verse here, if we're calling you to stay away from the cliff and we're calling each other to be men of the Word, the third thing is, the third verse here is, is a classic. And it says, the person that doesn't play next to the cliff and the person that, that delights himself in the Word of God will be like a tree firmly planted. Now this is a great picture because what you have here, this is a picture of a healthy tree that's planted by streams of water. It puts itself, it's a picture of someone who has put themselves in a place of nourishment. And this tree grows deep roots. And the person that sets their course to, have, to not be, to run hard away from sin and run towards the Word of God is like this tree. Its roots grow deep. And there's something about a healthy tree that God wants us to be like. You know, the, the idea of being nourished is just a beautiful picture. But what does a nourished tree do? It does these things. The first thing it does is it produces fruit in its season. And I would ask you, are you a fruit producer? As you examine your life, wherever you are, whether you're 20 years old or 80 years old, do you have fruit in your life? I would encourage you to look first at your marriage and then your family. 
Those people that are closest to you, hopefully, as you've been walking with Christ and staying away from the cliff, those people would say, my life is better because you're in it. I am more in love with Christ than I've ever been because of His strategic placement of you in my life. Our children should feel more secure and more challenged to follow a risen Savior because of us. And not be confused about, well, I don't know if that Christianity stuff really works. I see real inconsistencies between what my parents say and, and how their marriage works out, plays out. Are we fruit producers? Can you point to a few people in your journey that, that are different today because of you in their walks with Christ? Led some guys, gals to Christ. Maybe you've changed your work environment because of who you are and your commitment to Jesus. Are you a fruit producer? We're calling one another to be fruit producers. That's the quest of what we're doing with this operation that we get to call Watermark. Not only do we nurture one another, but we want to turn each other into fruit producers. That the reason God has called us together, given us this place, given this great opportunity to be nurtured, to become trees, is so that we impact that world out there. We're not trying to make you necessarily feel better about yourselves. We would like to make you feel greater about your family and your efforts on a day-to-day basis. But the purpose of doing what we do is so that we can honor Christ and change that world for His sake. A tree firmly planted produces fruit. It also, its leaf does not wither. And that's a picture of a tree that is reliable, that is consistent, that is dependable. And I would say to you men, if we're really following Christ, would that be one of the adjectives people would use to describe us, to describe you? He is reliable. He's a rock. He stays the course. He doesn't, when the winds start blowing and the storms come, He's like that tree. It bends, but it does not blow away. God's calling us to that, men, to be secure, stable leaders. And every one of us is called to that. This is not 10 or 12 of us. It's every one of us. So we produce fruit. We're reliable. And the third thing is that we're always, he says, everything he does, he prospers. Let me, talk, let me address this for a second, if I may. Um, this is, I hate it when this, this verse is used in the context of a prosperity theology pitch. We're saying, you know what, we do all these things so that God will make us rich. I want to throw up. You know, that's the, having money in a bank account or not having money has nothing to do with God making you prosperous. That is false teaching. What we're talking about here, prosperous, is like the tree that fulfills its purpose. That tree is prosperous because it grows roots and because it's strong and it produces fruit and it's reliable. It fulfills the purpose that it's here for. That's what prosperity is. According to this passage, it's fulfilling the role that you've been put here for. It says, whatever you do, whatever God has given you to do, you will be prosperous. If you are a man that runs hard away from the cliff, 
if you are a man that runs hard towards the Scriptures, stays in a context of nourishment, and he continues to grow with his roots taking a deeper, deeper place in the soil. That's what we're calling one another to. At the end of the day, that's what it's about. That's, that's how you go to war. You stay single-focused. You realize, I can't serve God and mammon, so I'm going to choose God. Well, and the person that chooses to follow God looks like Psalm 1. And that's what we want to be calling each other to, honestly. That's where we want to go. That's where we're going as a church. That's the calling on our lives. To be about something more important than ourselves. I have yet, and I'd like to meet them, to see the person that really has joy in their heart that has lived a life consumed with me, with themselves. I've seen more unhappy people that have had stuff. You know, being around Dallas for a long time now, I've seen it all. I've seen people that have given their lives to everything but what is important. And they end up with no respect in their marriage, kids that despise them, a bank account that they worship as opposed, as opposed to a God that they serve, and there's no joy in their lives. And it's because they've been pursuing the wrong things all their days. And so we're a little bit like the American Legion. We're going to keep showing up to keep telling you that there's a war to engage in, a war to win, a war that is noble, that, de- that demands everything on it. I said, Dad, did these guys come just once or twice? He goes, oh no, Scott. They came every few months, and they'd make their pitch again that we, we have a noble task before us. Are you ready yet? I said, why did they have to come so many times? He says, because people weren't always ready to hear the message. So they would tell it again and again. So maybe as long as we have breath, continue to call one another to that kind of devotion and that kind of commitment. And how we get there, well, you can have little breakfasts like this, and this certainly has its place. And I'm glad to be the American Legion speaker this morning. More importantly, though, we're going to be starting a deal next week we call the Summit. And it is, it has been designed, been put together, been worked towards to accomplish those things that we've been talking about. To create in you and me a real desire to follow hard after Christ, to be a disciple, and then to broker all of our influence to get others to do the same. This deal we call the Summit has been laid out again great for us this year. We have outlines and we can sign up in two places when you leave here if you're not signed up. There's a place, there's a room that you can go in and sign up online with a computer and pay with a credit card. Or there's going to be a table out there that lets you sign up, pay cash. We, for, our, for Just for the materials to help us a little bit there. But the idea, man, is to give you something, give you a program to help line all of these goals up. And that's very significant. Because it's the guy that chooses isolation that is on a road to destruction. And we, don't, we desperately don't want you to do that. But there's one more thing besides being a part of a summit, being a part of a good church and community, that will allow you to take this kind of ground. That will allow you to be the soldier that God has called you to be. To make your life count for something. And it's called creating an eternal perspective. It's the idea of viewing everything through the eyes of eternity. Make no mistake about it, fellas. We are but a vapor. Our days are going very, very quickly. 
before long we will not be here and we hopefully will all will be in the presence of Christ in living not eternity. But there is a significant play for us while we're here on earth. Uh, it was Kyle that used it a few weeks ago when we all shared some of our key favorite passages. And he talked about 1 Corinthians 3. And in 1 Corinthians 3, basically it lays out the plan. So it does matter what you do with your lives, guys. And he lays out this whole idea. He says, you know what? The foundation is Jesus Christ. And whatever you do with Jesus Christ makes a difference. You can build on things that won't last, or you can build on things that will last. But at the bottom line, at the end of the day, if you invest it for eternity, you receive rewards. If you do not invest in eternity, he said, you'll still go to heaven, but you won't get the rewards. It's a great passage to wrestle with and say, what what does this mean? We're not going into that today, but what I will tell you in conclusion to that is that's what, what God has given us to whet our appetite, that there's a purpose for investing every day of your life. That it's not something that you casually dabble in. It is the reason that you were saved. It's the reason that you draw breath and the reason that He has not taken you off this planet yet is that you have purpose. And there are eternal purposes. It's hard for us to hold and to keep that posture all the time. I know. Because we're, we're clouded out with different things, the events of the day, and there always seems to be something pressing that drives us off our game. But somehow we have to fight to keep that eternal perspective. And I will tell you, uh, I didn't see Mike here this morning. If you're here, I'm still looking for you. But my uh, friend Mike Williams has that perspective. Uh, Mike isn't here because he's uh, having more tests run today for his cancer. Mike has gone back and forth. He's already been given a number of different uh, timetables where he needed to get his stuff in order. And so his his journey uh, is is very numbered. Uh, and God, a couple of different times, has preserved him from that and has kept him around. And recently, a couple of weeks ago, he thought it was in remission and they said it was all over his body again. And this is the guy younger than me who, uh, uh, in all, all uh, vision, looks like he's got his full life ahead of him. And that he's got plenty of time to do whatever he wants to. But as we talked about this thing, cancer, this death sentence that he lives under, and he's reminded that his days are numbered weekly by doctors and the way he feels. He says, you know, Scott, it's a great advantage. You know, it's a great advantage that I have over the rest of my friends my own age. He says, because I know my days are numbered and I don't want to waste any more time doing things that don't count. I want to be about the things that have eternal value. I want my wife left feeling loved and nurtured. I want the people I work with to know there is a God and that He has made provision for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. I want to enjoy the life that He's given me by telling people how wonderful my God is. And I don't have any time to waste. He says, see, I've got an advantage. See, somehow I wish everyone realized that. That our days are, in fact, numbered. I just thought that was incredible. He can look at me, smile from my ear, and he says, I've got an advantage on you guys. I'm living with a limited number of days. 
And I'm not wasting any more time. But the truth is, we all are. We just don't know what, how many of those days are. I said, thanks, Mike. That blesses me. That encourages me. He said, don't feel sorry for me. This is the greatest posture I could be in. I am in a posture where I am trusting God and I'm not wasting my time. I'm living for eternity. So what we're calling you guys to, that's what I'm, well, you guys are calling me to, that we live a life for eternity. That we live a life that is engaged in fully following Christ and brokering everything we're worth to get others to come and do the same. Won't you come join us in the summit? Join us in this journey of being totally sold out so that we can fight and win this war, this war for men's souls. Let me pray. Uh, thanks for uh, time to be the American Legion speaker uh, this morning. The old crusty guy that comes back and says, come on, join us in the war. It's the most noble thing we'll ever do. I thank you that you have done that, that you've stirred many, many of the hearts in this room and they're doing a good job. I pray that you will allow them not to grow faint-hearted, that they will continue the race. For those of us that uh, are still deciding which will serve man, uh, God or mammon, work in our hearts, Father. Give us a conviction that eternity is worth everything that we can do. Just thanks for the privilege of these men and what you've done in all of our lives by providing us uh, a Savior. I thank you that none of this makes sense that Jesus has not come back from the dead. And I praise you, Father, that you did, that you raised him from the dead, that we might serve a risen Savior. Stir our hearts, Father. Allow us to follow hard after you. In Christ's name.